0: So I'm Dan Atkins, and in case you're wondering why I'm up here to talk to you, the main reason is that um, for every sermon that's ever preached, it's not ever done in a vacuum. It's done in collaboration, and a lot of times this may be with books, it may be with other pastors' sermons, and for a lot of time, it's myself and Pastor Andy doing the collaboration together. Um, so for a few months now, I've been meeting with him more or less every week to kind of go over the sermons. And so he's been asking me for a while now, hey, would you ever like to come up and preach? And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, maybe, we'll see. Um, but I'm here today to do that for you. So um, he's, kind of, he's kind of known for saying in our meetings that if they don't like the sermon, then it's, he's going to blame me. So I guess if you don't like what I have to say this morning, his email's in your pamphlet that you got this morning. <clears throat> All right, so as you all know, we've been going through a series here called Kingdom Come. And as we've been going through this, we started out um, talking a little bit about what this kingdom is when it began. Uh, When it began. When we began the series, we talked a little bit about what this kingdom is. Kind of the foundations, Kingdom 101 sort of thing. And we moved into the next week by talking about... um, Let's see, what did we talk about the second week? Wow, I can't even remember. (laughs) Um, We talked about how to inherit this kingdom. Um, We talked about how this kingdom is ours kind of for the taking, how we can partake in it, how we can move into it. And last week he talked about colliding kingdoms and how, um, and he gave a presentation of the gospel message last week. And so some, most of you were probably here, I hope. And if some of you are here and managed to accept that, that's great. And I think that's awesome. And I just want to celebrate with you in that. And so this week, I want to talk about uh, something that is related to this idea of accepting Christ as Savior. And it's the idea of Jesus as King. And um, as we've gone through this series, I've felt like I've learned a lot from it. And I feel like I hope everyone else has learned a lot from it. And I feel like I have kind of an idea that I want to express and some words that I want to give to you guys. So it's my hope through this that... Um, If nothing else, that God will communicate to you guys through my message here. You know, I'm not just here to kind of be the guy who's going to give that kind of okay message one time. I hope that God can speak into your lives through this. So so what I want to talk about is Jesus as king this morning. And um, before we get too far into it, and I don't have a verse up on the back there, but there should be a Bible somewhere within your vicinity. We're going to look at Matthew Chapter 16, verses 24 through 25. And uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible or you don't want to pick one of those, you can pull out a smartphone and open up the uh, a Bible app if you've got that. I'm totally okay with that. That's what I usually do. But I felt like this would be easier this morning. So, so um, I'm having trouble. All right. So Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25. Um, <clears throat> it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it just a really quick, short couple verses there. And I just want you guys to keep those in mind. We will come back to them, but that's the main, uh, mess, That's the main verse that I'm going to be drawing from this morning. Um so as i mentioned before there are a few ideas that i kind of want to share this morning and i and this is in relation to this other dimension of no talking about jesus as king as lord and savior and it's this idea of jesus as king um so for many of us i would assume that f- if we grew up in the church jesus as lord and savior is probably pretty common to us we probably have heard this sort of language before you know it's something that I feel like I heard a lot growing up at the church, and I feel like it's, you know, everywhere in the culture too. Um, you might have seen pictures on Facebook or on the internet where it's where you see something where it says, Jesus saves, and then underneath it says, by shopping at Walmart, or some sort of, you know, kind of maybe blasphemous sort of thing like that. Um, but the point that I want to make there is, We hear this language of Jesus as Lord and Savior a lot in our culture, and if we grew up in the church, we hear it a lot as well. Um, If it's new to you, nothing wrong with that, but I feel like it's something that's present. When we talk about Jesus as king and when we use that language of king, that might be something that's a little not as present and aware to us. Um, King, much like that language of kingdom and how Andy said a few weeks ago, is that um, it's kind of a foreign language and word to us. You know, we don't really live within a culture that has a king. We don't really live in a culture that is a kingdom. We live in the United States of America, which is a representative, dem- democratic sort of political culture. Um, <clears throat> and this is pretty intentional because that's how our country was founded. We were founded very much as a country that was meant to be against the notions of kingship. Um, we wanted no taxation without representation. If you guys can remember the last history class you took, which may have been a long time ago, I know it was for me, um, you know, this is probably something that you heard a lot, is that in the building of the country, the founding fathers wanted to promote a country that was about personal representation, was about um, giving us, not having us under the foothold of a king, and I guess you could say a dictatorship, Um, that's what we've really come to embody in our culture, is that we want personal representation in our government. We want to be able to feel like freedom and liberty is ours, and it's ours personally, and that we can have it. This wasn't really the case in kingship cultures, especially in cultures that came from the ancient Middle East, cultures that Jesus lived in. Um, These kingship cultures' personal identity wasn't quite as important as fidelity or um, loyalty to your king. In those cultures, the important thing to do was really to go ahead and um, state your allegiance to the king, state your allegiance to the kingdom. And it was important to make sure that you stuck by your countrymen and your country and your king. And all those things are tied up together in the same notion that it was not as important how you felt as a person. It was more important what you did in relation to your kingdom. <clears throat> um, and so when we encounter this language of king and kingdom, a lot of times it isn't, a very, it isn't a deeply felt reality for us because our reality that we live in all the time is one of personal representation, is one of personal freedom, we don't think of ourselves as aligning ourselves with a king. We might think of ourselves as being beholden to our government, but it's still different because it's, all, it's about us and our own selves. So in ancient cultures, the case was not to necessarily be all about yourself, but be about the king, <clears throat> be about the kingship. And within the Middle East, at the time of Jesus... There's one big ruling body and one big authority and one big king, and that was the Roman Empire. At the time, the Roman Empire had stretched from Europe, throughout all of Europe, into the Middle East. It was advancing as far as it could. It had taken over everything, and the Roman Empire was the king. This was the king of Jesus' time for the people who lived under it. But because the Roman Empire was so spread out, they had to set up provincial rulers for all their different places that they were spread out to, um, because the Roman emperor couldn 't necessarily oversee everything. You know it was a time long before anything we may have here, so of course, you couldn 't see what was going on in far off places. You had to have provincial rulers who'd report back to you and so in the middle East in the, in the province that encompassed Jerusalem. Herod was the king. Herod was a provincial ruler here. And in a very real sense, this meant that Herod was the king of the Jews and the Jewish people who were underneath the Roman rule of that time. Once again, if you've grown up in the church, this is probably a pretty common idea that you've heard. You probably know it from the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Herod was the king at this time. The thing is, is that be- Herod being king here, was this was a big affront to many of the Jewish people who were living at the time. And this was a big affront to them because they held in their memory the promise of God, that God would deliver to them a land within which they could live, a land where they wouldn't be under the domination and power that they had been for much of their time. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, back in the time of... Uh, ah, sorry about this. <clears throat> um... So the Jewish people had been occupied throughout much of their history. Um, and throughout much of this history, they had been under oppression. They were underneath the heel of the Egyptians. They were underneath the heel of the Babylonians. And now they're underneath the heel of the Romans. And so at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were very, very much um, underneath someone's authority. And they held in their memory that God had promised them a land, a land that was their own. God had promised them that they would have a place where they could not and would not be underneath this sort of uh, domination and this sort of power. And so this was being held as Herod was a ruler. And so it was kind of an affront to them to have him in this place. And the place that he was as king of the Jews was the throne seat of David. David if any of you know the story here, um, was the, is probably the most well-known king of the Jewish people. And there's a good reason for that. Um, David came into his place as king after a long line, not necessarily a long line, but after a line of other kings throughout Israel who had come out of a time period where the 12 tribes of Israel were being ruled by judges. Um, at one point in history, when the Jewish people were in their land, they did not have kings, they did not have a king, they had judges ruling over their land. But the Israelite people didn't necessarily like this, and so they started complaining to their prophets and to God, give us a king like everybody else. So God said, okay. So they gave him a king, and they didn't necessarily like that king, and they didn't necessarily like the next king. But then David came along. And David was a king that they really liked. And there's a couple reasons for this, but the main one is that David came in and took the kingship at a time when Israel was divided in severe civil war, and he united the land. He united Israel. Most of you know the story of David and Goliath, and he slew Goliath. He saved them from the Philistines. He united the Israelites. And David was the one who was promised that the Messiah would come through in their lineage. So when we come to the first century Middle East, this idea of David as this, huge king, and the throne being David's, and David being king of the Israelites, um, is burned in the Israelites' memory. And David is a pretty tough act to follow. I mean, if you could unite a land and slay a giant, you'd be a pretty tough act to follow too. Uh, so, So the Israelites very much held this in their memory. So Herod being in this power seat was a great offense to them, because it was somebody who was not supposed to be there? It was somebody who was over them and overpowering them. And so the last thing Herod kind of wanted would be to have somebody come up and take over his throne and his power. Even because this was an offense to the Jewish people and the Israelite people of the time. But <clears throat> Herod would not want somebody to take his power, the power that he had over this province. And so Herod made kind of a power move at this time. And this power move was what was mentioned a few weeks ago in Andy's sermon where he talked about how Herod went in and killed the the, um, infant sons in Israel in the first century because he was so scared of somebody taking his power. And there's a reason he was scared is because at this time there was some civil unrest going on and there were people who were advocating a revolutionary sort of message, people who wanted to take the throne back and take Israel back for the Israelites take it away from their own leadership. So Herod made this power move to help keep his power and to quell these revolutionary sort of um, sayings that were going on. And this power move was killing a bunch of children. But this wasn't uncommon. This wasn't uncommon for any sort of authority or power at this time. See, the Roman Empire managed to assert these sort of power moves often with people. And the most famous and probably horrific example of this is in crucifixions. Um, crucifixion was is a form of punishment that happened a lot. And, um, you know, I'm kind of going into a little history, so I hope you guys can just bear with me. There is a point to it. Um, I can see a little, little bit of glazing over. So, you know, I'm also, I'm also a professor. So if I start to get into that kind of mode, just give me that sort of Give me that grace that you understand that. (laughs) I am going somewhere with this. So, back to crucifixions. Crucifixions were a form of punishment that happened a lot at this time, and they are very much used by the Roman Empire. And crucifixions, when they're used by the Roman Empire, were used to quell dissidents. They were used to take people who were advancing maybe revolutionary message or people who just did something that was so against what the Empire wanted that they would crucify them. And it was meant to be an example. They would crucify somebody so they could show everybody, if you do this, like this person, this is going to be your fate. This is what's going to happen to you. It was a power move. And it was a power move to meant to showcase who was the ruler. It was meant to showcase, really, who was king. <clears throat> now, kings generally rule with power and authority. Um, and not all kings or not all kingships would use crucifixion, but within the Roman Empire, this was pretty common. And all kingships who were ruling with, a power, with authority and power and domination would use something to keep the people in line, people who were going against what was supposed to be, um, what was supposed to be right, what was supposed to be uh, what the king wanted. <clears throat> so no matter how good of a king someone was, they would always be ruling with some aspect of a power over others. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't necessarily do this. Because Jesus, with his life, didn't necessarily um, showcase a power over others. Rather, it's pretty clear from the Gospels that Jesus showcased a, a sort of life of service to others. His power was not this power over others, but it was a power that was built from coming underneath, power under, a power meant to be in service to others. And once again, we see this in the crucifixion. So whereas the Roman authority or any authority would use crucifixion as a means to assert their power over someone else, showing the kingship by strength and the ability to hold someone's punishment in their hands, Jesus came in to this culture and showed it in a different way. He showed it where he is not, Jesus's kingship is not one where he is ruling over us with an iron fist like the Roman Empire would have been. We see this modeled in his life. We see this modeled in his life where he washed his disciples' feet, where he healed the sick, but also in his willingness to go through the most horrendous form of torture and punishment imaginable at the time. We see this because he went through crucifixion. Um, And the thing is, is that there were other people who were advocating sort of revolutionary messages. And if Jesus had been crucified and he was advocating some sort of revolutionary message, this would have been a really failed kind of attempt because the Roman authority would have just quelled it. If Jesus was just some human ruler who was coming through, or just some human ruler, some human being who was saying, do these things and you know you can take down the authority at the time and then they had crucified him it would have been a failed revolution it would have been a failed attempt but jesus wasn't just human he was god and he rose from the grave and he defeated death on that cross and so he showed that his power is greater than the roman authorities and i'm gonna get into how that looks but jesus's Kingship, his power, his authority is of a different sort. So the cross in this model is testifying to who is and isn't king by showing who has the power from the Roman Empire. But it also showcases who Jesus is king. It showcases Jesus as king. And it's not because he crucified others, but because he himself was crucified in the act of service and humbleness. Out of love, he was crucified to save us. This is the gospel message at its most basic level, that our king is a king not because he rules over us, but because he sacrificed himself for us. This is what is meant when we say, when we start to talk about Jesus as king. He wasn't domineering over us. He wasn't overpowering us. He wasn't showcasing his authority over us. He was sacrificing himself for us. This is also Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, but it's also him as king. <clears throat> and so um, this is all related to what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Um, which is this idea and this process of new creation and the kingdom of God breaking into the world. Um, and so I want to go further and showcase how this is played out in the cross. And how it has played out with Jesus as king showcasing the crucifixion. So if we go back to that verse we read earlier, Matthew sixteen twenty four through 25, um, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for my sake will save it. <clears throat> the key here is what Jesus is saying about crucifixion. This verse has been widely interpreted throughout... Um, throughout the history of the church and Christianity. But the general sense in our time is that it has been a way to kind of explain how we should approach the hardships in our life. So if you think about it, how many times have you heard a sermon or a message preached um, where this verse is used to uh, explain how you can get through a time of financial unease? Or how many times has this verse been used to explain how you can get through that time when your friends or family maybe don't necessarily like you too much? Or maybe this was explained to you about how you can get through that time when your marriage isn't so good. Uh, This is, in general, how this verse has come to be talked about in our churches, in our culture, in this time. And this is usually related to us pulling out the old adage when we're going through a tough time that, well, we've all got our cross to bear. You know, just kind of, we got this thing that's going on, and we got to carry it, and we'll get through it eventually. Unfortunately, this makes severe light of the passage that we read this morning. Now, this isn't to say that there are times when we go through some major hardship that greatly affects our lives. Rather, we tend to view this verse through our lens of being Americans who can worship freely. Many sermons point to this this is what they do when they're using this um this sort of interpretation for this verse but it loses sight of how sor- how horrendous and severe crucifixion was how much of a p- just horrible punishment it was to people um so likewise the idea of carrying your cross so like <clears throat> in addition to this and how horrendous crucifixion was the idea of carrying your cross was part of the punishment of being crucified And it was meant to humiliate. So in the power overview, this dominating authoritative view um, of the world and of kingships, carrying your cross was meant to humiliate you and to showcase to everybody once and for all that you cannot escape and you are always going to be subject to our authority. When Jesus says that you have to carry your cross, he's borrowing this image to state that anyone who will follow him is going to have a great burden. But more so than that, it means you're going to carry a price for following him. And this is the heart of the gospel message being offensive. Because I would assume that for most of us, we don't necessarily want to do something that's going to publicly humiliate ourselves. So this image that Jesus is using here is a very, very careful image, and it's very powerful, And what it is showing is that some people will find the message offensive and that the price you pay for living the gospel message will be like carrying your own cross to your execution. However, and I understand this, this might not seem like it initially vibes with this, the idea of the kingdom of God breaking in. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven coming into the world and transforming and renewing things. It doesn't necessarily seem like it initially sets well and vibes with it. So I want to look at it again. So if Jesus is a new sort of king, and he's establishing a new sort of kingdom in this world, then following Jesus and carrying our cross isn't just a burden. It is, yes, but it isn't just that. Because Jesus carried his cross once again as a symbol of his kingship. Remember, crucifixion was meant to show who is and isn't king. So Jesus carrying his cross is showing him as king. And it's showing that his rule is going to be a different kind of rule than the one of the authorities that are in power at the time. It's going to be a rule that's based on being poor in the spirit, that's based on feeding the hungry, that's based on taking care of widows and orphans, of being a power under in service and humbleness to others instead of a power over in domination to others. So carrying our cross in this model isn't just trying to solder our burdens for a little time and get through that rough patch. No, it isn't even just being open to no, and it isn't even just being open to the sort of persecution that comes with following an offensive message. Rather, we carry our cross in order to show our own allegiance to this king by carrying the very cross that he carried. And we testify to the new life and the new kingdom we are a part of when we do this. <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Jesus went against the authority of his times, not with a powerful fist of domination, but with the greatest act of loving sacrifice anyone could give. We are called to model this when he tells us that we must carry our cross, um, and to part and to, in a sense partake in this act in a very non-physical sort of way. It's not saying you need to go get crucified, But, remember, (laughs) it's a metaphor. He's using this to talk about how we are to live our lives. So our cross isn't just a burden. It is a clear indication of the sort of kingship Jesus has and the kingdom of God coming into the world right here and right now and how we are now people who are a part of this kingdom. So, you guys with me on this? Was that a lot of information? (laughs) Too much? Um, So here's another angle to consider here. So if we are to follow in Jesus' example, we must carry our own cross to our own execution. But this isn't simply an execution um, based on persecution. Now, this happens throughout the world. People are executed for their faith. There is this sort of persecution that happens. For us, living in the United States, we don't experience that. So how can we, come, how can we understand this language of execution? <clears throat> What it is, is this is an execution from our old ways of life that we used to live in. So in God's new kingdom, there isn't any room <clears throat> for us to be hateful, jealous, vengeful, or to constantly live in sin. These ways of life are being executed as God's work is working in our lives. And as the kingdom of God is breaking in and changing us from the inside out, <clears throat> we, these ways of life are being executed, and this is what Paul means when he says in the Bible, um, "I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." This is how Jesus becomes King in our lives by urging us to take up our cross to the execution of ourselves as people who live in a way that is the antithesis of the as people who live in a way that is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. Did you guys get that? (laughs) That's a complicated sentence. Jesus is urging us to take up our cross to our own execution because we live in a way that is in the antithesis of the kingdom of God breaking it into the world. This is how we are meant to unseat ourselves and these ways that do not align with the kingdom of God in in our life and meant to place Jesus as the king of ourselves and to set him up as the king of our lives. This is the idea of aligning ourselves with Jesus. Coming back to that notion of how in kingship cultures, the important thing was fidelity to your king and aligning yourself with the kingdom. In this sense, we are meant to align ourselves with Jesus as our king. So just as taking up our cross is a symbol of this act, so is the fact that we consciously choose to become members of this kingdom. Remember, Jesus isn't here to dominate over us and say, you have to follow me because this is the way it is. No, we are choosing. We come into this kingdom by making choices, by accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, um, which is, in many cases, the first step into coming into this reality. So Jesus is a different sort of king. He is the kind of king who isn't here to demand our allegiance simply because that's what we do. We are not born into this kingdom we make that choice to become citizens of this kingdom. So if this is the way it is, and Jesus's kingdom is about restoration, healing, redemption, and making things new, then what sort of things are we supposed to be about when we do say that Jesus is king, when we do align ourselves with him? Those are the sorts of things we are supposed to be about. We are supposed to be about healing, redemption, restoration. Since we are now aligned with Jesus' kingship, we should be seeking to right the ills and wrongs of the world. And I'm not trying to say this to say that our salvation is found in doing good acts and doing good works. I think it's pretty clear from the Bible that, and from Scripture that our salvation is found in God, and it comes from God. But... It is clear that loving others and helping to bring this healing and restoration is a part of this. It's a part of this whole package. So, <clears throat> I'm just going to read. You don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to read a verse here. It's Matthew 22:36 36 and through, through 40. And in this passage, we find Jesus is asked by um, somebody what the greatest commandment is. <clears throat> Jesus states... Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend the whole of the law and the prophets. So right there, Jesus is clearly indicating what the greatest commandment is. What is the greatest thing that we should focus our attention on? It's loving God first and foremost, loving him, making God our priority. It's aligning ourselves with God. Our salvation isn't found in ourselves but from God. And Jesus is clear on this in this passage. This is our first act. But just as important as that and following from that act is loving others as ourselves. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think for the most part, you know, we probably love ourselves a lot. I mean, I'm not the most selfish person, but I do care what happens to me, and I do love myself. And I would assume for most people, we love ourselves. Like, we're not going to go out there and do anything that's going to seriously damage us. Um, so how amazing would it be if in God's new kingdom we were able to love others in the same way that we loved ourselves? This kind of love would change things. This kind of love would be so compelling and so inviting, and it would be the kind of love that would cause us to want to desperately and actively um, right the wrongs of the world and to actively look for healing and restoration. This is where the blessings about being humble and being servants comes into play. Jesus was crucified because of the kingdom he was bringing into the world, this kingdom that causes us to change everything. Because of the salvation that Jesus was bringing, we are meant to carry our cross and partner with Jesus in loving God, loving others, and helping to usher in the redemption of creation. Is everybody with me here? You got it? <laughs> okay. But there is one thing about this, and that is that we are still human, and we are still very much a part of creation. We are still very much here. And what this means is that we, too, are the ones who are being redeemed. We are both the ones being redeemed and the ones helping showcase the redemption of the kingdom of God to the world. This is what it means when we state Jesus is king. That we have aligned ourselves with this person and that we are helping to showcase this redemption that is taking place in the world. This restoration and healing. So, you guys might be on board with me with that. You might not be on board with me with that. But, you might also be wondering, how does this sort of thing look in a person's life? Do you know, how does it look in somebody's life when this healing starts to happen? Specifically, how would it look for us in our culture? I have a very good friend, and he's someone that I've known um, for quite a long time now, well over 10 years. Um, I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. He's one of my best friends. He's been a guy that I've been through a lot of life together. So there was a while where he was deeply, deeply mired Deeply, deeply entrenched in depression and loneliness. And a couple of years ago, he came out of it. And I think that his story showcases this redemptive power. <clears throat> so, this depression and loneliness that he had had taken a hold of his life. And no matter what he tried, what he did, he could not get over it. He couldn't be happy. He couldn't be joyful. He just, he was just a completely depressed person. Happiness wasn't even on his radar. No matter how hard he tried, he just couldn't escape that darkness in his life. And he tried very hard to be a very devout Christian at this time, and he was. He read his Bible, he prayed, he attended church, he did all the right things. But this darkness still consumed him. This depression, this loneliness, it just ate away at him. And so for those of us who knew him and who cared about him, we tried a lot to get him over this. We prayed constantly with him and for him. We took him out to places all the time. We did everything we could think of to cheer him up. Ultimately, though, what had happened is he had placed himself at the center of his life. Ultimately, he had put something else in the kingship seat of his life instead of Jesus. And unlike a lot of us who might put personal um, fulfillment or who might put our own career goals or who might put our own sort of advancement in that place, he had put his own depression. He had put his own right to feel bad about not getting what he wanted from God and from life. And this had led him into this cycle of depression and loneliness, now before I go too much further into this I just want to clarify that I'm not saying this is how people get depressed and lonely I'm not pres- I'm not doing a prescriptive sort of thing where I say this is how people become depressed but rather this is how my friend explained it to me this is how he told me he got depressed um <clears throat> this was the root cause of his depression his darkness placing at the center of his life this notion that he should be getting something from God because he always did the right things and he was very devout and he held to right theology and all this sort of stuff. And yet he didn't get what he saw other people got. He didn't get a girlfriend. He didn't get a good job. He was in debt. He was depressed. He was lonely. There was just things wrong and he felt like he should have that from God. And he felt that because of who was king in his life. But I'm happy to say that a few years ago, he encountered God in a very real way, and this changed for him. And what he began to realize after this encounter was that he had not aligned himself with Jesus. There was a different king at the seat of his life. Um, He was not experiencing the breaking in of the kingdom of God because the king in his life was not the king of that kingdom. But when he did finally this, do this, I can definitely attest to the fact that his life is radically different now. Um, you know, there are still days that where he struggles, and I imagine there are more than I know about, because God doesn't promise us complete perfection and happiness. Rather, God promises us restoration and healing. And so, in my friend here, um, he might still have times where he struggles, but he also is no longer paralyzed by fear. He is no longer paralyzed by depression and loneliness. He doesn't sit around all day and just wonder how bad he is and is angry at God about it. No, instead, he has a joyfulness to his life. Instead, when he talks about people, he doesn't initially approach it by saying, oh, look what that person has that I don't have. He's happy for them. He's joyful with them. If somebody gets uh, something good financially happen to them, he's happy for them. He's joyful with them. He celebrates with them. But the other side of the t- coin is that when he hears something from somebody who knows that might break his heart, that he hears about them going through some sort of depression, his heart breaks. He wants to help that person come out of their darkness and their loneliness. He's not angry about the things that he used to be. Rather, he wants to help lead people into this sort of new life that he now has, this new kingdom, this place where he now sees that he doesn't have to be beholden to the darkness, depression, and loneliness, but rather that he can find a joy in the midst of trials, that God is working in his life to heal him. And probably the biggest testament to this is that he's married now, which, if you ever knew, my friend, you would know is a huge, huge testament to God breaking into his life and changing him. (laughs) Um, So, yes. So, this is all good, and this is what Jesus does when he becomes the king of our life, and this is what happens when we say Jesus is king, and when he becomes the king for us. But another angle related to this is also related to the kingdom. And this is how this kingdom also functions when, and this is also something about this kingdom that is different, again, from all the previous kingdoms that have come. This is that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that will last. It is a kingdom that will not fall. Just as Jesus is a king of a different sort who is about healing and restoration and redemption, Jesus' kingdom is about that. And his kingdom will not fall because of that. In Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, it states that, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The key in this verse is that the kingdom of God is unshakable, that it will not fall. All other kingdoms through the course of history have had their lifespan. They've all fallen at one point or the other. If we think again about the Roman Empire... It lasted for 500 years. It was massive. It expanded through most of the known Western and Middle Eastern world. And I imagine there were plenty of people in that empire who thought that this would last forever. It was never going to go away. But it did. And it did for the very key reason that all kingdoms that are not this kingdom of God will fall. And that is because it was a kingdom built on power over and power and domination The Roman Empire fell because they split into East and West because they had a civil war. They fell because there were other forces and other nations that came in from them to destroy them and take over their power and their seat of authority. But Jesus' kingdom is not like this. It's not a kingdom that's meant to power over others, but it's meant to come under others in service and humbleness, to restore, redeem, and renew creation And because of this, his kingdom can't fall by the way that other kingdoms do, because it's not the same sort of power over others. And Jesus' kingdom has lasted for a long time, and we can be assured that it's going to endure forever. This is an eternal kingdom, not just because it comes from an eternal God, but because it is not a kingdom from this world. It is a kingdom that has its source from a different place, it is a kingdom that has a different kind of king, a king who calls us to a life that is radically different from what many of our tendencies would be, a life that is radically divergent from the lifestyles of me first that we all too often may see in the world. Ultimately, when Jesus is king, we are called to be a part of this redemptive, breaking and unshakable kingdom that is making all things new because that's what Jesus is about. That's what we should be about And that's what his kingdom is about. And that kingdom can't ever fall. And that is a good message.